Hi, it's Sarah here. Just to say that in this episode, we do talk about um, instances of domestic violence and abuse, which can be distressing for some listeners. Please check the notes to this episode where we have a number of resources that you can go to for help if you need it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Activist Lawyer. Now, I am absolutely delighted to be joined uh, via Zoom. by Richard Port, Solicitor, Richard Port, MBE. So welcome, Richard. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. I know you're in the middle of moving house when I spoke to you yesterday. <laughs> I am at the minute, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for giving up your valuable time. I know that's an extremely stressful thing to do. Are you are you settled into your kind of temporary home a little bit? Um, I'm not, not moved just yet. I'm waiting to complete on, on Monday, but... Um, It'll all be fine. It'll it will be, be absolutely fine and it's all going to plan. So, yeah, yeah fingers crossed. <laughs> okay. There'll be no problem. Um, well, in the midst of moving, Richard, you have an extremely, extremely interesting um, uh, area of work that you're working in. And it's something that I really wanted to address for a long time on the Activist Lawyer podcast. So, I'm delighted to have you. Just a little bit of background for our listeners. So, Richard Port, MBE, is a highly accomplished family lawyer with a particular focus on domestic abuse. Richard is partner at George Green Solicitors based in the West Midlands. In 2022, he was named Solicitor of the Year at the Birmingham Law Society Legal Awards. Richard's commitment to helping victims of domestic abuse is evident in his work, with many domestic abuse organisations and constant advocating for change. He created and delivered a training programme for staff to assist service users in accessing legal aid to help represent and protect victims of domestic violence. In recognition of his work, Richard was awarded an MBE for services to victims of domestic abuse in the 2022 New Year's Honours Honours List. His dedication to his clients and his community makes him a highly respected and valued member of the legal profession. Outside of his work, he is Deputy Vice President of the Birmingham Law Society, Chair and Trustee of the Heart of England Community Foundation and Senior Visiting Fellow at Suffolk University. Wow. <laughs> it is an absolute pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to get into um, your your work, Richard. Um, but before we get into that, can you take us Back in time a little bit, where did it all begin, your legal career, and what made you enter the world of law in the first place? Um, I t- yeah, taking you back in time. So I, I'm from Derby originally. Um, I moved to the West Midlands uh, about six, seven years ago. But yeah, Derby born and raised. Uh, my, none of my family members are lawyers. No, no link to the legal profession at all. But I, I did work experience at a firm in Derby called White, Donald Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, I must have been 14 at the time. Um, and I was the office boy, tea maker, legal assistant. And, and I kept coming back each year doing different jobs. Cause I just, I really, really wanted to get into law. I, my dad um, had some open university like law videos on the VHS back in the day. And I'd watched them when I was really young and re- really thought, do you know what, I really want to do law. I want to help people. So did work experience. Um, I went to Nottingham Trent University. And at the time, my friend told me to go for a scholarship, get the scholarship interviews at the Inner Temple. She was going for him. She said, you, you go for it. I said, I don't want to be a barrister. I don't, I don't want to be a barrister at all. I, I, I want to be there from start to finish with a case. So I, I went for the interview. I got asked uh, some weird and wonderful questions, particularly about my Jude Bedham reward. 
So what's your um, what was your favourite moment on your Duke of Edinburgh? And I and I just said it's honest with them. I said, well, it was the end because we were on a a boat all the way from the from the campsite, and all I could think about was the Hawaii Five O theme tune as I'm on this boat going going through. Um, and then I was awarded um, twenty thousand pounds exhibition scholarship. Brilliant. So um, my 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 mum, when I spoke to her about it, I said, look. I told my mum, no legal background at all. I said, so look, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a barrister. Yeah. She cried her eyes out. And I said to her, what, what's wrong? And she says, why do you want to ruin your life and make coffees for a living when you've got a law degree? Mm. And I said, no, 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 not a barista, mum, a barrister. <laughs> all right. So, so I went to Bristol oh. for a year, did my bar course, um, <laughs> And then came back and I, I signed a training contract with a firm that I'd been with since I was 14. And at the time, the changes to legal aid had been made about mm-hmm. domestic abuse. So I'm, I'm asking for a piece of work. And I'm asking some advocacy to get my teeth into it. So they, they took me a case. Um, and it was someone who was in a refuge. So I'd started speaking to the refuge worker. And she said, well, no one's ever actually trained us in family law. And I found that really bizarre, thinking, well, surely the, the change, we've got a change in domestic abuse to legal aid. Surely solicitors should be working with the refugees to try and train them up, get them to know about legal aid, get them to know about family law, give them the power to help the service users yeah. know more about what they're facing rather than just being the only ones that have that power, have that control. Well, you need me because I'm a solicitor. Mm-hmm. And you need to pay for my advice or you need to get legal aid for myself. So I'd spent time with the refuge workers, trained them up, everything they need to know about family law. They all jumped ship to different refuges because there's, there's always an issue with uh, tender for contracts for, for domestic abuse organisations. So then those workers moved to different refuges. So I trained them up and then I trained them up. And then it was a never-ending cycle of it all. But I found that I was, I was good at it. And I think it was... I'm not that one-size-fits-all solicitor. I'm not kind of in the sense that when you watch a solicitor on TV or you hear about them, you assume it's going to be kind of, it's a nine-to-five job and they're all they're only doing it to, to do that nine-to-five job. And, and to me, it's, I was just talking to someone today about the law. It's not a job, it's a vocation. I, I enjoy helping people. I enjoy... Uh, protecting victims uh, and pushing for the cause mm-hmm. because it, it, it is a cause. Um, and I'd spent all these years uh, until recently kind of doing this by myself and then found others, other professionals that are also fighting to help victims of domestic abuse. Um, and it's been really great to kind of speak to them and share ideas and talk about what they've been through and how they help their, their service users or clients and things like that. Um, but it's a massive community and it's, and it's amazing to see so many people wanting to help others. We, we had lockdown, didn't we, where with the whole pretense was be kind. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we've seen sort of lost that be kind. I, I, I don't yeah. When was the last time you heard someone say, be kind? Yeah, you're so um, right. Yeah. But in the domestic abuse community, that's still there. It's still helping people, still wanting to make sure the cause is there. Um, I left that firm at the time, moved to a medium-sized firm when we were going to help, uh, help victims. It got quite dangerous in the domestic abuse work. I had a tracking device on my car. I had threats. 
Sorry, um, a tracking device. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I was about to leave a firm um, and I went for a job interview on, on the Friday. Um, and then on the Monday, a case that I was dealing with, um, he decided to leave his solicitor and go for the firm that I was moving to. Now, this said firm is quite far away from where that person was. Okay. So then I then found out his, his friend, because of what's happened with domestic abuse, was his party trip was put in tracking devices on cars. So I found one on mine oh uh, and got rid. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it got a bit dangerous. So I stopped it for a little bit. But then I, I, I want to say, when you, when you come out, they pull you back in. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, there was no one there to help these victims and no one to help the organisations and things like that. So I came back to it and I've been just been doing it ever since. Ever since. Again, pe- yeah. people need help. Yeah, and people certainly do need help. Um, huge numbers, unfortunately, will need your help and others like you. So you work under, I suppose, um, the heading of family law. But what's really interesting mm-hmm. to me is that you specialise, and I haven't come across anyone before. I told you previously, and listeners might know, I sit on the Women's Aid Board here in Newry, so the Women's Aid Arma Down. And it's something that we discuss a lot is, um, you know, the lack of movement in terms of legal issues. But there's mm. nobody that seems to be pushing things on um, in that regard. And, you know, we're aware of the difficulties around these complex cases, you know, that are often treated in the same way as common assault, like a normal assault, like a somebody yeah. hitting somebody in a pub. It's very different from, you know, somebody who's been a victim or a survivor of domestic abuse, abuse especially if it's been, you know, um, persistent and ongoing for, for years and years. We have children involved very often, financial issues, um, you know, the, the survivor has nowhere else to go. So there's huge complex issues there. Then when it comes to, you know, the legal uh, landscape and the support that's there, it seems to be quite lacking in various areas. So in terms of your work, Richard, what you know, and I know I will say as well, England and Northern Ireland are very different spaces mm, when it comes yeah. to um, protection and support, even around domestic violence. I mean, we don't even have a strategy here uh, for violence against women and girls, um, which is hugely problematic. Um, so the guidance is even lacking. But let's go back to even the very basic terms in terms of reporting. Um, you know, and we know so many cases are underreported. What do you see as the key challenges for somebody who wants to bring a case um, around domestic violence and domestic abuse? Um, there's many kind of challenge, challenges to it all. I, I was m- quite big on sociology when I was uh, younger. Mm-hmm. So I did GCC sociology and A-level. And I think the biggest problem you've got is that even if you report it on the actual official statistics, it may not come across as domestic abuse because you've got this thing called the dark figure of policing. Right. So, say, for example, you have an issue where um, someone reports, like you say, an assault. Now, that should be domestic abuse if it's between you and your partner. Mm-hmm. Now, if that month they need to kind of have a higher figure on just common assaults, they'll label it as just a common assault. Yeah. But actually, if the following month they need to have it as a domestic abuse incident, then they'll label it as such. So we've got a big problem with what the official statistics say, and I've, yeah. I've been shouting this out over high water and all that jazz. Um, but the, the actual challenge for people reporting it is the police don't have the resources. 
So you may report a crime, mm-hmm. but it may take them a week to come to you to kind of take a statement. Even if you report said crime, mm-hmm. they then got to investigate it. And again, it takes them months to investigate. And if it's a very complex case, yeah. it's going to take even longer for them to investigate it. They've then got to get the, the arrest to take place. So I've had a few cases where we've reported a crime. We've gone through the hurdle of having statements taken and police coming out and taking it seriously. They've then got to arrest the perpetrator. And the amount of times where we've told them where the perpetrator is mm-hmm. and they just said, well, we haven't got the resources to go or there's no one available or um, we're, we're trying to check it through with our sergeants. So even if a crime is committed, and you obviously know there's a crime committed, mm-hmm. then it, it, it doesn't work out simple yeah. at all. And then you've got the other factor of, of being taken seriously for what's happened. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult one because I think the trust in the police has gone awry yeah. to whether they feel that they can trust them to actually take on the case seriously and deal with it. And, and the amount of cases that I've seen where someone's reported a crime and they're made to feel like they're the actual one that's committed the yeah, crime. Oh, wow. they, they're, they're challenged so much yeah. that they're fearful that if I take this further, what's going to happen to me and what's going to happen to my children? Yeah. So, so many um, cases just aren't followed through, I'd say. The, the, the amount must be quite startling. And there's various reasons for that. But even in the very early days there where you said where a crime has been reported and it might take the police a week you know, seven days or so to come back to yeah. interview that person. Within that week, so much can change for that, you know, Massively. person who's reported that crime, which it, it makes puts them in a really volatile position. It's really worrying. Now, just talking as well about time limits, which is a huge problem in terms of bringing a case, given that it takes the police all of that time to investigate, et cetera, et cetera, even to go to court, um, many people become timed out. Is that still something that you witness very often. Isn't that bad that we, we would, that's, that's the perfect word for it, timed out. Your case is timed out. And yeah. I've had probably about two of those. Um, so I, I only deal with the family law aspect. Yeah. So I've got no control over the plea sure. or the criminal aspect at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, timed out. They've got all the evidence. There's clearly been a crime committed. Yeah. But on the technicality that when they get to court that they're probably a day or two days late. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah timed out it's done sorry and, and all you get is an email from the cps saying yeah. apologies yeah we we thought we might be able to push it but yeah we were timed out on this okay um we can't take it any further mm. so yeah and does that it, have a knock-on effect for your work then i guess in terms of or do you d- does it affect you know the elements of the kind of the advice and representation that you provide or does is that separate it, it does, because when you go to court and you're trying to argue domestic abuse and then you've got the perpetrator saying, well, the police didn't do anything about these yeah. allegations against me. I wasn't convicted. And it does kind of take a bit of a shine off your case, sure. doesn't it? Because uh, you, with, with the courts themselves, um, you've got a lower threshold for the civil cases, a balance of probabilities for the criminal cases being beyond reasonable doubt. So... Again, when you're going in and you're trying to argue that, well, actually, even on a higher mm-hmm. position with a criminal court, they didn't find that person guilty. But on a technicality, then the criminal courts are going to go, well, actually, 
I, I don't think well, the civil courts. I mean, sorry, yeah. are going to think. Well, actually, what, what's the point with this? So it, it does affect, and, yeah. and you can imagine with victims, they've spent all this time getting themselves psyched up about a criminal trial and um, being brave to go forward and face and challenge their their perpetrator. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, they get told, well, actually, sorry, technicality, he's, he's out of it. He's out of it. That's so frustrating and so dangerous, really, as well. It's very, very disappointing, you know, to know that we haven't moved on. And really, I, I feel like this area of the law, um, there's just a lot of blindness to it from all all parts. But just around the recognition of new types of, um, you know, harm, I suppose, as a criminal, um, a criminal matter, coercive control for example mm. and um, other forms of abuse that haven't been traditionally I suppose spoken about or recognised that don't just involve yeah. assault. Do you see those cases coming forward more? Are they more difficult in terms of working on and getting representation? Um, so originally when controlling coercive behaviour was made a criminal offence, what they were using the, the police were using it for was a blanket um, offence. So if, if the assault didn't work, they could try and get them on the controlling coercive behaviour right. as a backup. A lot more cases now, you, you have that as an extra offence mm-hmm. on the charge sheet. My only concern is that police aren't confident to use it as something on its own. Yeah. I've never seen controlling coercive behaviour as a sole offence. Right. Because mm-hmm. and, and right maybe in some cases rightly so because there's other forms of domestic sure. abuse, yeah. but I don't feel the police are confident with it just yet. Just and it, and it's the yeah. same with um, I don't know if you're familiar with domestic violence protection orders and and domestic violence protection notices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've in my whole career and I <laughs> basically just all my cases are domestic abuse cases. I've seen three of those oh, in the last what just over ten years. Shocking. And that's because, not because they can't go for them, yeah. it's because the police aren't confident with them. Sure. Um, there was one in Liverpool where they, they had had that, and I've got to commend whoever the police officer was on that because they knew exactly how to use it, they knew exactly the time frames on it, but I've, I've not seen one, one since mm-hmm. because the police, uh, what they do is a blanket statement to, to victims is if they raise domestic abuse or uh, harassment and stalking, the police just advise them to go and seek a normalisation order with a solicitor. Right. When actually they've got the power to, to go for urgent orders if they wanted to, they just either haven't got the resources, time, um, or the confidence in, in that, that area. Whether you're talking about Northern Ireland here, we know there's various issues, our own problems, um, but across the board there seems to be need for, for huge improvement. What do you see as, um, you know, can you identify any key areas that you would see, you know, would really help support survivors and, you know, complainants who have been, who have experienced domestic abuse and violence? The problem I have, because people ask me this and say, what's the solution mm. to, to resolving domestic abuse and getting rid of it? There's, there's many little things we can do. Mm-hmm. Training with police, training, training with the judiciary, yeah. training with solicitors themselves. Because the amount of times I get clients come to me that they've been to see another solicitor and they say it's kind of a, a total change around the talk to me. There's, there's no kind of empathy yeah. and there's no kind of understanding to it all. But overall, I think my problem with, 
with what is a solution is not as simple as that. And the phrase that I fire around is that if you give a victim a shield, if we were to change the law and we were to say zero tolerance on allegations of domestic abuse, um, the problem you've got is that perpetrators are now, they're using it as a, as a sword. Yeah. They're going into court, the family court, they're alleging domestic abuse, um, and you go in, there's, there's one there's one victim and there's another victim. So if we go with a zero tolerance approach, then actually the real victims, they're going to face very harsh, false allegations against domestic abuse, but the courts have got to take him very, very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. And that could result in not seeing the children because yeah. of these false allegations uh, or losing out massively otherwise. Yeah. So I, I get some people say we need to have this zero tolerance. We need to do this. We need to do that. But it's not. It's not clean cut. No, it's not. And, and I, I represent a lot of say victims who had false allegations made against them. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, I'm I'm able to challenge them and show them for what they are false, and that they've only been raised to try and muddy the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does scare me that if we go 100% zero tolerance, yeah. then there's going to be a lots and lots of battles in court. If we go down to the other end and don't take it seriously mm-hmm. at all, if anyone raises a domestic abuse allegation, then lots of victims are going to be stuck in a position where their allegations aren't taken seriously. Sure. Um, and that's not a good world to be in mm-hmm. at all, especially now when a lot of allegations made still aren't taken as seriously as it should be. Yeah. That's a huge problem. And I think across the board, really, education is the key, you know, in terms of the general kind of scheme when it comes to mm. um, this type, specific type of abuse, um, which is still seen as, you know, especially here. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that in Ireland it wasn't, you know, recognised at all. And it was, you know, still very much behind closed doors, say nothing, it's none of our business type of uh, scenario. So hopefully we're breaking free from um, those old traditions and norms. But as you said, there's still a lot to do. And a huge amount to do here, especially in Northern Ireland with no functioning executive. It's very difficult to get pertinent yeah. issues moved on around this this area. So just in terms of your actual um, casework itself, I know there's a very high profile case, um, Griffith v. Griffith. Um, and I didn't recognise the title of the case until I read into it. And I do remember this case. Um, it's about the former Conservative MP Andrew Griffiths and his ex-wife Kate Griffiths, who was found by a judge at I think it's Derby Family Court. To yeah, have, my my hometown. That's your hometown. Um, to have abused and repeatedly raped his ex-wife, and I read some of the details and I went down a few rabbit holes. There's a lot to this case, and what happened is really, really harrowing. It's an awful, awful read. Um, but this is a cornerstone case and something that you rely on. Um, can you tell us a little bit more why you know that this is very important to you and your clients? Yeah, I've, I've read up on it. So I, I never dealt with this case. Yeah. I know Dr. Charlotte Salmon, she was counsel on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I use it for contact centres. So normally what the, the pre-stance was that if you were a victim of domestic abuse and your, your ex-partner had to have contact in the contact centre, um, the, the, the standard stance on it all is that both parties share the cost for a contact centre. Okay. Yeah. And and how kind of shocking is that? That is. Your, your perpetrator's got to have 
supervised contact in a contact centre. Mm. Not because of you. You've done nothing wrong in this situation, but you're, you're wanting to make sure your children are safeguarded. And you've got to pay for the privilege of them having contact in the contact centre. So I, I normally raise um, the, the case of Griffiths and Griffiths. I went to appeal on, on that point. Um, and the courts are actually, yeah, fathers should pay for the contact centre. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I raise that with the courts because, again, it, it shows that if you've got domestic abuse and it's proven domestic abuse, it's not allegations that are fired around, mm-hmm. then why should a victim have to have to pay for the contact centre? Yeah. I, I, th- I think the problem we've got with the courts is that they are very over overrun with cases. Mm-hmm. There's massive delays. And uh, they they haven't got the time to kind of sit down and properly take in cases as to what they are, and that's quite sad. Yeah. Because it's the court. That's what they're there for. They're there to help victims, and they're there to help parties try and resolve matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had cases before where I had one, and it was I think it was during lockdown, and mother mother had been extremely assaulted by father like head smashed against the wall, beaten up. Um, and we went before a legal advisor and the legal advisor said, do you know what the issue with this case is? Communication. I'm going to send you both on a separated parents information program because I, I think if we saw how you two communicate with each other, that will be it. And I went, wow. I don't think communication is the issue here. If you'd read the papers, you'll know that dad likes to attack people and assaulted her on many, many occasions. So she won't be doing the separated parents information program. We'll be getting this out for a section seven report because in the day, he's a safeguarding risk to the children. Mm. And at that point, you, I realized they'd just not read the papers properly. Yeah. Um, they'd not take it in. But again, it, it sends out a bad message that you're going to court, you're a victim, it, say the person's been convicted uh, or you've got clear evidence of domestic abuse Mm -hmm. and then you get told off by a judge because at the end of the day you're not communicating well rightly so you're not you you, this person's scared out of their wits as to what could happen yeah it's so insulting as well and i mean my background is primarily in immigration but in a former life i did um when i worked in dublin work on a few cases in family law that uh, concerned awful, horrific cases of domestic abuse and domestic violence that had been ongoing for years. And what really disappointed me was when we finally got to court, it came down to the pounds, shillings and pence of the the matter. And, um, you know, the the wife, the, the woman in this case, had really geared herself up for her day in court. And she... Yeah. It was so courageous and she, it took her years to get to this point, years of counselling, years of help, years of support. Um, and she finally felt very brave and she felt like she wanted to stand up. But the judge was ha- having none of it and she wasn't. She had, um, you know, it was almost like a, a speech, I guess, that, that she felt that she could read out. And it really just came down to a very quick pounds, shillings and pence. This is what's going to happen with the home, the family. So it was all about the settlement and the agreement. Yes. Do you yes. often come across that where, um, you know, the survivor, really their experience is, is dismissed in many cases? Or, you know, what has your um, experience been around that? Too many times. Mm. And... I think my attitude to cases is I'm I'm not kind of 
I won't stand down and stand back mm. and be quiet about it. I probably should do. Yeah. Um, well, I probably just. I, I probably. <laughs> well, I probably just. <laughs> well, I, I. It annoys. It annoys people, but yeah. at the same time, I, I, the way I see it, I'm representing the angels. Mm. Um, this is this is the way I go, I go with it. But I don't like it when people are dismissed. I don't like mm. it when you, you're you've you've said something that's relevant. And quite scary um, mm. about allegations of what they've been through, and then they're made to feel tiny about it all. They're made yeah. to feel that well, actually, you're not important in this. Um, and and I get I get why we have that in the child arrangement cases. At the end of the day, the children are the, the paramount concern about it all. But when you've got a parent that's gone through severe domestic abuse, the children have, have also been through it one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're putting forward your concerns and allegations, mm. and like you say, it's pounds, shillings, and pence, but not in the sense of um, in the sense of the finances of the parties, but in the sense of the court, yeah. because you've got to remember, and it's terrible and horrible to say this, but the courts are a business. I know, yeah, That's they're exactly a business, it. and the end at the end of the day, they need to get as many cases There's possible no to keep keep yeah. it going. There's no time. Yeah, I was very young, kind of a trainee working on, on that case. But I remember just feeling so deflated when I when I went home and so sorry for this this person, you know. It takes it out of you, yeah. doesn't it? I think it actually really, because I didn't specialise in family law, but I really had empathy for family lawyers and some of my friends because it's a very emotionally draining um especially what you're doing i mean it must be emotionally yeah. draining like how do you how do you factor that in and i mean you're obviously a family man and you've lots going on outside of work how does it impact you i, mean, um, I know you said it's a vocation and not a job but do you separate the two i've been doing it for years yeah. i try not to be i'm serious with the job and i'm mm. serious with the cases but i, I try not to take it home with me but i at the same time, I just want to help people. I think I think when clients meet me, they have this pretense that I'm going to be this really horrible, serious, kind of uh, really intense person. And then when they realize, actually, I'm not in that yeah. any shape or form. It's only when it comes down to representing people mm-hmm. and making sure that they get the best and they are protected. That's yeah. when different Richard turns on to it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... I don't like, I, this is my rule. People send me stuff about like, oh, have you watched this documentary about domestic abuse? Mm. Have you watched this, this and this? I will not watch that. I will not really? go home and go, do you know what? Let me stick on this documentary about domestic abuse. It, it will either be a documentary or it'll be a comedy because I, I've, I've done my day of having all those emotions. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a counsellor to clients. Yeah. So I will, I will send them off. So, if it gets to a point where they need counselling, I will say to them, sure. let's get you some counselling. Mm-hmm. But I will be there when they need to vent at me about what they're going through. Um, I'm, I'm there for them. And I'll, I will come up with a strategy. I'll come up with a plan as to how we do it. Because with domestic abuse cases, you've got to be four steps ahead. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's sad about everything is the stories are the same. The tactics are the same as the perpetrators because mm-hmm. they think they're very, really, really clever. And that they've come up with this amazing idea that if I do this or if I do that, then that's awesome. going to happen. But unfortunately, they're not. And actually, the stories, the plans, whatever they do, are the, 
exactly the same as what others have done. Yeah, you've heard it all before. Um, <laughs> I've heard it all before. And the only thing that changes is the location and the names. Yeah. That's all it is. Um, so as much as they think they're really clever that we've I've tried this, this and this, it just doesn't work. Because yeah. um, originally when I was a trainee and I was getting into all of this, I was watching other solicitors, how they were dealing with their cases, because there was some reason in Derby, there was a few solicitors that were representing perpetrators. And what they were doing were legal legal tricks oh. on the victims. Um, and that's how they were getting away with trying to get contacts or trying to sort out funds and stuff. So, again, all legal, none of it illegal. Um, so I just kind of, a switch went off in my head and said, well, why aren't victims doing this? Why aren't? Solicitors for victims using the same tactics, same tricks to make sure that they're on an equal playing foot. Yeah. Because I, I'd, I kind of sheriff what, what work is in the area in regards to um, legal aid firms. I'll speak to domestic abuse organisations and just make sure that whoever they're sending their work to, they're happy with. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've known firms who are specialists in domestic abuse and they're not specialists yeah. in domestic abuse. It's just something they stick on the front door. Sure, yeah. So I, I kind of empower domestic abuse organisations that they are the keeper of the keys. If they're not happy that their service users are getting the best service in a fast time and yeah. it's, it's proper legal advice, I tell them, go somewhere else. Yeah. You're, you're in charge of it all at the yeah. end of the day. So important, so valuable. And I mean, you've been doing this for a really, really long time, um, Richard. You make me going. sound old, Sarah. Well, and you, you, look, you look, you look so young, and you, you know, you're not not old at all. But it was only in 2022 um, that you uh, were recognised um, and awarded your MBE for services to victims of domestic abuse, which is fantastic. And congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Um, how did that feel? It's not really sunk in, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I went to court a few months ago and it was for a financial case and there was a, a Richard Gere, white-haired, look-wise solicitor who was mm-hmm. sitting next to me. And when the judge was introduced to the parties, counsel stood up and said, oh, and, and I'm instructed by a Richard Paul MBE. She automatically looked at the Richard Gere, white-haired fellow, <laughs> thinking, oh, that must be, must be him. him. MBE and, uh, and you know that scene in Hot Fuzz where they're all dressed up in their, 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 their masks and stuff and he goes hello there I have to then then step in in front it's of him me. and go ah, it's me hi hi but yeah I'm, I'm 32 and it, it's kind of not it's not sunk in and I, I like it I'm, I'm very proud of the honour but at the same time it's kind of a bit of a kick in the teeth because right. I've, I think I'm the only one in the country that's got the legal services domestic abuse victims. And an MBE is basically you've gone above and beyond everyone in your profession mm. to what you do. And to me, I, I don't think I've gone above and beyond. Mm. I don't think the work that I've done or helping victims or say that service that I've provided to the organisations and been on the end of the phone for them. Yeah. To me, I don't think that's been above and beyond. And it's kind of upsetting that I've been recognised for that. I get it. I, I know it sounds weird, but it's no, me. It. And that's what I'm, I'm campaigning to make sure that actually other solicitors, yeah. they are kind of setting that standard to help victims. Yeah. 
Because yeah. if I'm saying, well, actually, I don't believe I'm going above and beyond. Yeah. And that's a standard, what, what victims should be ha- mm-hmm. having for the service. And that means that people are below that standard. And that's, that's not acceptable. Well, I, I see that, um, but it maybe plays into your feelings about it being a vocation and not a job. You know, that maybe, it's something that you're yeah. always going to do and to try and improve. Um, but I have to say, just from my perspective and working in law and also working with um, organisations around domestic violence, it's so refreshing to see somebody dedicated to this area of work and to really making big change and the fact that you're even you know um, still in contact with the organizations around training which is so important and making sure mm. that people have that access and legally it is there for people to access and if it's not working then you're there to tell them to go somewhere else or send that person somewhere else that's a really important thing because people do not have yeah. confidence they do their confidence and their self-esteem is completely diminished you know and they have very little support apart from fantastic agencies like you know um organisations like Women's Aid and the various other um, domestic violence support organisations out there but that's really it you know and they've nothing else outside of that so for me yeah. it's really refreshing to see your work and I hope you know the fact that I know you, you have an MBE and you're very very humble and modest about that and um, I think it really um, shines a light on the importance of this area of work in general and that it is very different it's very specific and it needs specific focus on it's not just another form of you know an assault as we just said, or something that needs to be addressed in the normal way through the courts. There's so much involved in these complex cases. So well done on that. It's fantastic. Thank Um, you. Thank you. And your work continues. And I think it's at this point, we'll ask you what we always kind of talk to our guests about. And I'm really keen to hear your perspective on this. But it's, and you're working in this, you're living this, but it's law and how it, um, you know, can make effective change in society. And, you know, are you comfortable with the term activist lawyer, which is the kind of tongue in cheek um, title of this podcast? How can the law and activism, you know, work together to make important change, specifically maybe in your area of work or in general? I think from my perspective, I think it's just not sitting down and being quiet. That's how we, we work together, because the law isn't perfect. Judges aren't perfect. The police aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and until we kind of realise that, and rather than just kind of sit down and go, well, we'll just carry on with the status quo, mm-hmm. everything is fine, um, then we won't make a change. We won't kind of get anywhere with stuff. We've, lockdown for me was the point where I kind of thought to myself, more needs to be done. And it was great that they were at one point saying that we're going to give all this funding to domestic abuse organisations mm-hmm. and we're going to help victims when they do all that. But then all of a sudden it went quiet. Yeah. I just thought, well, why is it? It's, domestic abuse isn't an issue that just is seasonal. It doesn't happen like only two, like, it's not Christmas. It doesn't have, happens like two weeks of the year. It's forever. It mm-hmm. goes on. And until we either eradicate it, which is going to be very, very difficult. And like you said before about um, helping the younger generation try and realise that if one is facing an abusive relationship mm-hmm. or to making sure say boys and girls realize that abusing people uh, emotionally physically whether it's not acceptable um, that might be a way now to try and tackle the cycle um, but it's not until we have more people that stand up and talk about it and not make it a taboo subject because you can imagine I'm not the best person to have um, 
at a dinner party and go, what do you do, Richard? I'm a domestic abuse lawyer. End of conversation. Um, I'd quite it, like that it, conversation. Well, party. you know, they're all <laughs> talking about what's on Netflix <laughs> and then they're uh, oh, great. Um, but until it's, it's mm. not a taboo subject, because again, when you make it a taboo subject, that's when perpetrators are stronger because, sure. again, it's secret. No one wants to talk about it. Yeah. No one wants to highlight it. No one wants to kind of uh, push forward. And, and victims then feel that they haven't got the confidence to talk about it with the place of work mm. or with their family and friends because they feel like they're going to be judged. So as soon as we get rid of that ju- judgment, then that's when people can feel that they can open up yeah. and we can then deal and tackle with the issue of domestic abuse because that's what it is. It, it's opening up and it's having the confidence to be able to speak out. Yeah. The other issue is then once they've spoken out, can people then take it seriously? Can people then, judges, the police, everyone else, actually act upon it as soon as possible? Rather than it being a number in the system, rather than it being another case for that day for a judge, it needs to, we need to kind of think to ourselves, this is someone's life yeah. we're having to deal with. This isn't kind of a uh, changing of a phone company or having to deal with, with a, a mundane task. They go home, they're either still with their perpetrator or they've moved out, hopefully with the children, but they're still getting abused. They're still getting constant emails, text messages, phone calls from unknown numbers. I had one, one person get a phone call um, from someone pertaining to be the, a police officer, wow. telling her how she's a bad mother and how um, she she's going to have her kids taken off her. And until we did some digging, that person wasn't a police officer. That was a friend of the, we, we assume, was a friend of the perpetrator. Um, yeah, so, again, it's, we've just got to make sure that we tackle it, we talk about it, and we don't make it a quiet subject or, or a subject that we, we only raise on LinkedIn every once in a while because it's Domestic Abuse Awareness Week. Yeah, or something's happened in the news, you know, that we all... Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we hold vigils and we talk about it for a little while and then it goes away. Well, it doesn't go away, as you say, for, for <laughs> those who are suffering from it. And you mentioned um, lockdown there. It was worse. I mean, from our experience here, the numbers were... It, it, lockdown was a very scary, dangerous, dangerous time for people who had been suffering because a lot of the services, you know, weren't able to provide that level of contact that they had been previously. Mm. The courts, you know, were completely either closed or overwhelmed or things were done differently. So that time was extremely, extremely worrying. Um, was it people. was it worse in lockdown though, Sarah? Well, I, or was it? Yeah. Was it that basically the pressure cooker had blown up because people were stuck in the house of their well, that's perpetrators. What I mean. Yeah, well, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, um, you know, the, the dangers seemed to have presented in a, in a very different way that people could not escape. Um, I just, I am familiar with just very difficult stories around around that period of time. And just, Richard, finally, I guess for people who are interested in getting involved in your line of work, and I'm sure many of our listeners will be, you know, really keen to hear about your career and how you got into this area and how you're so, I mean, passionate about it. And I think you need to be, you know, you need to be someone with that empathy and with that passion for working in this area because it's it's, it's not easy. But if somebody wanted to get involved, what would your advice be for somebody who maybe wants to change into your career or wants to start out in their law career working within your area? Um, for family law in general, I'd say there is as much work experience as you can. 
I, I, I say I speak to new trainees and they've done work experience at lots of different firms. I, I was quite fortunate to to work at a firm at such an early age um, and have the, the partner um, take me under his wing, Kevin O'Donnell. I'll give a shout out yeah. to him. Um, I, I owe it all to him, so to speak. Um, and his, his late brother, uh, John, um, if it wasn't for them kind of giving me that confidence. So I've got no family members at all in law. Um, my parents had no clue at all as to uh, university or about what path to go down. Um, but I think it's just get as much experience as you can yeah. um, and then just build it up from there. And if, if it's an area that you, you love, because again, you have to be a certain type of person to do family law. Um, then, then go for it. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been doing it for many, many years. I don't have a Sunday afternoon, Sunday night kind of dread that I'm coming to work the next day because I know what I'm doing sure. is, is helping people. Um, but with a domestic abuse work, I think if, if that's an area you want to go down, then I, I think the best way to do it is get into family law, help as many people as you can work with as many organizations as, as you can because to the way I, I've spent my career I've just listened to people and that's the best way to be rather than thinking I know best I know everything I don't I don't know the best I don't know everything I, I like to, to listen to organizations I like to hear from their experiences how do we make things better how can I make sure things are getting better because unless you're talking to people and not in a narrow-minded dogmatic this is the only way it's going to work then you're never going to help anyone whatsoever so i say it's a re- it is rewarding it's stressful i won't lie um but when you've known you've helped the right people and you've you've made a difference to someone because again it's if you're a conveyancer um and i have much admiration for conveyances um and all that jazz, you're helping someone buy a property and they may be in that property for five, ten years. When you're helping someone get out of a domestic abuse situation, you're literally changing their lives forever. Because in some scenarios, that, that change could mean life or death. In other scenarios, it could just mean a very unhappy situation. And if you think of it of the, the ricochet effect, you have children involved, you're protecting those children as well and you're making sure that their future is bright on the way, way forward. Richard Port, thank you so much. Really, really fascinating Thank you very much, Sarah. Interview. I'm so happy to have you join us here and we'll definitely check in with you again. Um, I hope you have a wonderful move and everything goes smooth. Thank you very much. That. And thanks for giving up your time today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.